This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to a Friday afternoon recording of the Book Riot Podcast. This is episode 375. Rebecca, we're recording on Friday, May 8th of 2020. You've cracked open a, a beverage of a sort, of a kind, mm-hmm. that lends itself to sunny Friday afternoons. It's 80 degrees and sunny here in Portland. And here I am in my basement recording a podcast <laughs> like a demon. Um, but here we are. Yep. It's about 70. It was sunny this morning. It's overcast now. My brain is in spring. I am drinking mm. a Narragansett Shandy. Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to do some news. Uh, but before we do that, let's, let's uh, take care of our first sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Elena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. A little bit of follow up. Um, well, not really follow up, but we got another. Wa- got a wave of uh, recommendation requests. Thank you guys so much for doing that. Probably room for a few more if you hear this uh, and you're listening to this early the week of May 11th or whenever next week is going to be. You probably have a few days to get something in still, and we'll get to it. Um, a little bit room left in in, in here. Uh, thank you guys for doing that. Had an email from uh, a listener asking. If you had won all the literary awards <laughs> and you had to write your Twitter bio, <laughs> what order do you list them in? Which I thought was an excellent way of power ranking the prestige of the various literary awards. Um, I don't pay attention to all of them. I know it goes all the way down to uh, the Pushcart Prize for Best Short Fiction Written mm. Left-Handed. Like You can go all the way down into stuff like that. Um, and I, I, I have my three in order and I'm going to say that I'm American, and I would I would be writing this. My ego would be writing this for other Americans. Okay. So I don't know. 
But I go Nobel Prize, number mm-hmm. one, no Obviously. doubt. Pulitzer Prize, second. And then MacArthur, third, oh, if I'm MacArthur. picking three. I didn't even think about MacArthur as a well, literary that's, award. That's, that's why I have a MacArthur, because I thought of it. Mm. That's, that's, how I, that's how I earned it. Also, the, you the didn't thing. tell me this was a question we'd be answering. So. <laughs> you mean I stacked the deck uh, in my favor? That means I'm an American. <laughs> oh, now is not the time for that. Now is not the time for that. <laughs> now yeah. is not the time for that joke, Jeff O'Neill. Yes. Um, I'm also going Nobel first, obviously. It's not a question, right? Is there any question about No, that? there's no, no question. It's the most prestigious. You have to beat out everyone else in the world. Tough beat. Tough yeah. beat to beat everyone else in the world. Yeah. I'm going Nobel I think also Pulitzer. I think those mm-hmm. tend to have also a longer tale of mm-hmm. recognizability than the National Book Award. And I dispute that the MacArthur is actually a literary award. I just said he won all the awards that I could have won as a writer. Mm-hmm. Colson Whitehead had one. Ben Lerner has one. That's, that's, that's a party I want. You know, uh, 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 who was it? Uh, Jesmyn Ward has one. That's I want to be in that party. That, that, I want that. That is a good, there's no, that's there's, a good party. There's no Pulitzer list that I'm going to stack up against the George Saunders, Jesmyn Ward, Colson Whitehead cocktail outer at the MacArthur reception. Mm. It just isn't. So yours is actually Nobel, MacArthur, then Pulitzer. You know, I actually had Pulitzer, then MacArthur, but you're talking me into, I'm talk, you're talking me talking myself <laughs> into making MacArthur number two. Hmm, Nobel, Pulitzer. I think it's hard after Pulitzer. You can go National Book Award. It's kind of generic sounding, I realize, yeah, in thinking about it. Then a prestige a, National Book Critics Circle Award. I mean, I'm sorry. No, no shade yeah, to the critics. I don't but, think you can make it into the top three on this. Yeah. Man Booker? Well, maybe. Maybe. It kind of depends. Are we talking about your ego or are we talking about trying to sell books? Because you could make a case Let's be honest. We're always talking about my ego. Let's just (laughs) be honest. Well, okay. Writer's egos. And I get like your Twitter bio is an expression of your ego. But... And that's... Twitter bios are really to impress people you haven't talked to since high school. That's what Twitter bios are for, right? Right. But if you take Nobel, Pulitzer, and National Book Award, all of those are things that you would get stickers on your book covers for, and they'd be on your blurbs forever, and that would help you sell books. So I think those are the top, or theoretically help you sell books. Mm. So those are the top three. Oprah's Book Club. Mm. mm. You've won all the awards. You've won all the awards. Now I want like the Oprah's Book Club Awards, like once a decade, a power ranking of all of Oprah's picks. Was it in mathematics, the Fields Medal? It's only awarded every four years. I know that because of Goodwill Hunting, not because yeah. of anything about math. Yes, Oprah's Book of the Decade. Like put, the, put the, that Winfrey. the Winfrey, the Winfrey, the yes! Winfrey. Yes, the Winfrey's. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I think For, from, from a lit- from a general purpose nerdery point of view, I don't even think people know what the National Book Award is. If you're a book person, you do. I mean, it just but sounds so fancy. generic sounding. Yeah. It it also sounds generic. MacArthur. If you know what it is, you're impressed, right? Like, there's no one that's not impressed. Yeah, I think your ranking is right for ego reasons. Like, there's no arguing with Nobel, Pulitzer, and MacArthur Mm -hmm. as name recognition that would get you like, oh, you're a good writer, capital G, capital W. If you're putting it in your Twitter bio, like, I'm fancy, or I want to have these three things in my Twitter bio because these are the three things that I've won that I can capitalize on. I think you go Nobel Pulitzer National Book Award because you get the little stickers. People don't know the details of the National Book Award, but they know it's a thing, and it does Mm -hmm. sound official and fancy in a way that, like, 
like the push cart prize, I don't think general readers would know. Like you could make no. up a sticker for that, but it wouldn't make much difference. Mm-hmm. Um, MacArthur Genius. This no is one gets a sticker for that, which I'm they, actually now you, you wonder if they should. They should. You should that. actually. You should like get a tattoo or a patch for your jacket when you get oh. inducted into the MacArthur Genius Club. Oh, you know, like how in Black Panther they have that like glowy lip tattoo that you like pull yes, down. Yeah. You need one of those. Things. Mm-hmm. You should. Ha- you should be able to like publicly signify at any time that you want that yeah. you are a MacArthur Genius winner. <laughs> I've got, I've got, I've got forty-year-old dudes telling me how happy they were to be an Eagle Scout at seventeen, but you wouldn't know a MacArthur <laughs> Genius Award winner if he spat in your eye or she spat in your eye. Uh, from go. a from a scratch money point of view, here's the thing. Now, if you were, if you could pick three to win right mm-hmm. now, I mean, the Nobel you would pick. But here's the thing about the Nobel that's weird. Oh, the thing. Let's be honest. <laughs> Well, let's call up the king of Sweden and get his opinion You get first. the biggest pot of, of ca- cold cash from the Nobel. So that right away, you get a million kroners or seven million kroners. I don't even know what it is, right? It's about a million bucks. The MacArthur comes in deuce with 500, lar- 500 grand paid mm-hmm. out over five years. The Pulitzer, it's 10K. And that's before taxes. Tough beat. Mm-hmm. Um, the Dayton Literary Prize, quarter million bucks comes along with that. So the 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 interesting thing there is, do you actually come out ahead from just a, your, what would your accountant pick, the Dayton Literary Prize or the Pulitzer Prize? <laughs> I wonder about that. Yeah, so the Pulitzers are, what did you say, 10 grand? I think that's right. And the Dayton is 250? I, I remember that it's, because I was, I, I did um, cartoon Hanna-Barbera eyes when I saw that the first time. It's, it's hard to imagine that a Pulitzer winner would get a big enough surge in book sales, like just at the jump, to make up the yeah. $240,000 gap between Oh, the you're talking about time value of money now. Because you might earn out the over the next 30 years with That's Pulitzer true. stickers at Barnes & Noble. That's true. You yeah. might, yeah. The Dayton Literary Prize sticker that doesn't exist is getting you nowhere in yeah. Barnes & Noble. No, nowhere. nowhere. But most books don't have long tails. Mm-mm. So, like, and if you go look back at the National Book Award of the Pulitzer winners from 10 or 20 years ago, a lot of them are like novels that we don't talk no, about anymore. And many of them point. are things that I don't recognize. So I think if I were going to do it, I would take the 250 from the Dayton right now if we're talking about cash money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, veil of ignorance, right? Like if you knew you could get in the Pulitzer 250 large for your book, I wonder if you went back and asked like the last 30 winners of the Pulitzer to, you know, you get in your DeLorean, you could redo this sucker. Mm-hmm. How many of them traded in for a Dayton? Then again, your Pulitzer is going to help you get book deals going forward, yeah. better advances. Yeah, that, I guess the Pulitzer is the one where it's interesting because the the relative prestige and the relative payout are all out of whack, and the Dayton is the opposite, mm-hmm. right? Where we barely know about the Dayton. Like, we don't cover the winner of the Dayton on the show when it comes out, yet we know what it is. It's a quarter, it's a quarter million bucks. I guess there's also the the value of the prestige, right? Like... How much? How much less of a payout do you take from the Pulitzer just to say you've won a Pulitzer, even if it gets you nothing except, you know, you can think about it at night. <laughs> you know, you can say, yeah, at like, least I've got my Pulitzer. I don't. I, maybe you're saying the same thing about the date, and I'm so. not sure. Yeah, like, I think in the world of awards in general, like the Pulitzer carries so much prestige and like ego value, and just confers such critical acclaim that the ten thousand dollars is almost completely irrelevant like Mm. the pulitzer could come with a zero dollar award and people would still be delighted to win it 
Yeah, the man Booker is interesting because it's a it's a English language, almost a world. Um, thanks, uh, English Empire, almost a worldwide kind of award for a single title. Whereas the Nobel, you know, it's for a body of work. You're probably, let's be honest, already old, probably probably already very well esteemed. Mm-hmm. Like you'll take the Nobel. Don't get me wrong, but the MacArthur is for you know people earlier in their careers. Like it's 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 meant to be a seed kind of a grant. Um, so in terms of the relative value of the money and prestige you get, there's that factor yeah, to think about as well. I think that's important. That's an important distinction that the MacArthur is a grant that the organization is functionally investing in those yep. artists' future. We're going to pay you a hundred grand a year for five years so that you can spend your time working on your art and not having like not having to worry about your day job, which most writers or creatives mm-hmm. do have. It lets you focus on your task. Or if you're a scientist, like here's a hundred grand that you can put towards your research or whatever it is. Go be a genius. We will pay you. But the other ones, it's like you have become a prestigious writer. You have written this great book already. Here's 10,000 extra dollars, basically as a bonus. Mm -hmm. And the Dayton, I think, is interesting because like if if it were just called the Dayton Literary Prize and it didn't have a lot of cash associated with it, no one would care. No. So they kind of have to put a big bucket of money on top of it. Like if we founded the Richmond Literary Award tomorrow and I gave it out from my hometown. No one cares about that unless there's a lot of money attached to it. Richmond doesn't have a big literary prestige name. So it makes sense to me that there's this inverse. This is something I've never thought about before. (laughs) Welcome to Friday in the Book Ride podcast, Rebecca Shinsky. (laughs) You know what the show does. Jeff, it's just all so interesting. (laughs) It is. Everything is so damn interesting. It is so true. It makes sense to me that there's an inverse relationship then between the name recognition or like the value, the prestige value of an award in many of these cases and the size of cash on the table. Um, Mm -hmm. Because you... You don't need both to get people to care. You need one of them. So if you have both, it's kind of a bonus. But I also think the Nobel is a big enough deal. People would care about that even for much less than 7 million kroner. Well, as we know, since we did an annotated battle back in the day, the Nobel is only a big deal because of the the big pile of filthy lucre that you get with it. Like before you got a million bucks, no one cared about the Nobel. Mm -hmm. Oh, there was no Nobel. But like that's the thing that made the thing. But now it's a thing. Now it's a thing. So if the award were less... Or, you know, gradually went away over time. I think the Nobel would retain its prestige. Mm-hmm. Let me let me throw a little Draper spin on this whole thing for you. How much leverage has whatever little birdie snuck out or first intimated? Because it's not technically called the MacArthur quote-unquote genius award. That's just its colloquial among nerd name. Mm. Like, how much, how much work has that moniker done so for MacArthur genius award? So if that's true... Then I, as as a um, as a wannabe principal at Sterling Cooper Draper Price, I would go to the Dayton Award and say, "We need to rebrand. You are now the Dayton Modern Master Award. How about that? What do you like about that? That works, right? Don't I you like think that yeah, they go up like four? Had, yes, or something or else. But like, I, that's what I came up with on the fly. Don't judge me. Or too. you even just take Dayton off of it and you just call it like the Modern Master Literary Prize. Oh, that's good. Or the the badass mf'er, badass mf'er. Can we do that? <laughs> We can. This is our show. This is our show. Let's start awarding that. I'm down for organizing yeah. that yeah. prize committee. I had to Google just now to find out what it's called if it's not actually called the MacArthur Genius Grant. And it's called it's just MacArthur. MacArthur. It's the Foundation. MacArthur Fellows. Yeah, Fellows. Celebrating fellows has a nice ring to it. I mean, a nice patriarchal ring to it, but there's something about fellows. being a fellow that's very nice. Yeah, but wouldn't you rather be a genius? I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> <I'm kidding. laughs> uh, 
Welcome to Friday. We have this fun, is, don't we? We have this fun. This is don't we? almost as wheels coming off as an after dark, which we don't really get to do anymore since we're on. Like by the time it's after dark here, it's mid afternoon. <laughs> I know, I know. I when know. it's after, after dark, dark there. means we're in the emergency room. If <laughs> right. we're in the. All right, let's do a sponsor, and we'll get that. That was a good segment for having nothing to talk about today. I like that. That, <laughs> that was, was fun. fun. Mm-hmm. We wrap it up there, but we won't. Here we go. <laughs> talk to you in a second. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Uh, you watch Becoming, which came and it hit the... Sometimes Netflix does these lot like coming this summer. And then sometimes like, hey, by the way, yesterday we released a documentary. <laughs> so I, I, I'm having a little bit of time vertigo within the time vertigo within COVID-19. Yeah. Uh, tell me about it. Okay, so usually they release things on Fridays going into big weekends. And so it, for I had it in my mind that Becoming was coming out today or tomorrow. But it dropped on Wednesday on May 6th weird day i forgot that that was the thing until i saw someone instagramming it and i was like oh i'm gonna watch this it's great it's exactly what i wanted and michelle yeah it it was charming and there's a lot of good candid stuff and i felt like i saw her in the way Mm. that i wished i had seen her in the book and it was very interesting um because since it's all about the book tour, you see her talking about the process of writing the book and about adjusting to life after the Mm. White House and also adjusting to life going into the presidency. And one of the things that Mm. she talks about a lot is how she, you know, used to just be a normal, like, you know, lay person who said what she thought and spoke off the cuff. But once her husband became a candidate for president and she was becoming very effective on the campaign trail for him, the media came after her, as we all probably remember, in a variety of gross ways. Mm. And she started being less spontaneous and speaking from a teleprompter and, you know, controlling her words and her image to try to avoid you know, damaging the campaign or damaging the um, administration or drawing attention away from it, but also just because it's really painful to see yourself spoken about in these ways all the time. And that the process of writing the book, but really of going on this tour is her way of like getting back in touch with herself and spending time like out in the world with regular teenagers and regular women in their book clubs. And um, so you see the unfolding of her like getting to just become more candid. So that felt like it was looser and personable and in the way that I wanted it to be. And also explained why the book felt restrained in the way huh. it felt to me yeah wait so it was recorded uh, sorry i want to do a little mm-hmm. genre stuff um so it was recorded during the book tour but yes. were there some interviews after like where mm, where in time are we relative to the the people you see talking on the screen we, where are they 
so are speak. it's all th- it's just the book tour. So it's and like so the it's no like months. after the storm kind of discussion of the book tour. Huh. No, it's like just okay. several months of her on the book tour, and yeah. she's in a lot of the cities that she did book tour stops in. She went to schools and met with you know like student groups of young black people, or she went to a church and spoke with women there, or she met with a book club that or like a there was a scene that's a book club meeting that's um, a black women's book club group, and then an, another book club group of mostly white women, and they were going to get mm. together and discuss becoming and Michelle Obama shows up and talks to them also (laughs) (laughs) like really interesting stuff and it was just great I watched the first hour of it Wednesday night and then yesterday morning I was like I'm gonna finish this with my coffee and like have a nice morning with Michelle and just for listeners who haven't watched it yet it is wonderful and it does include a lot of footage from the presidency or like from critical moments but she reflects at one point on um summer of 2018 Mm -hmm. no the summer of 2016 when uh, marriage equality passed and also when black lives matter started erupting at the same time because of what was going on in Ferguson and the shootings in um, Charleston. Mm. And there is the scene of Barack singing Amazing Grace. And I was unprepared. Like, there is a rule in my house that we don't talk about feelings before 10 a.m. because, Mm. like, your brain's not awake. And I was unprepared for emotions at that point. (laughs) Yeah, you don't don't shoot hibernating deer. That's not fair. That's not sportsmanlike. It's not Michelle's fault, yeah. but I was just sitting there at 7.30 in the morning with my coffee, not yet a person, oh, yeah. definitely not in control of my faculties. Yeah. And then Barack was singing Amazing Grace. But it was it, it's wonderful. And it was a nice thing to watch in the middle of this pandemic to think about not just like things have been bad and they will get better, but also it was good for the human spirit. Do you think someone who hasn't read the book would get as much out of the documentary or like what's the I, what's that kind I of I think situation? so like there are a lot of clips of her on stage with oh. different she had a different interviewer in most cities so you get to see like uh, Stephen Colbert interviews her in some cities mm. and Valerie Jarrett from who had worked with her for a long time interviews her in others and like Gail King and those interviews cover a lot of the same material and then there are voiceover sections of her reading little bits from the book. I think mm. if you're interested in her life, you don't need to have read the book. It'll probably make you want to. Yeah. Just so you know, I'm looking I thought I thought maybe like the paperback was coming out, like that's why oh, I drop no. it now. Um, no, for starters, November 13, 2018, still in hardback, though I will say on Amazon.com, a little website that some of you may have heard of, the the price for a hardback is $11.89, which is 63% off the cover price of thirty two fifty. which seems to me like it's getting into, they're running through, the, like, this not selling as much anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, we're getting into remainder territory, so probably this fall, you might expect a paperback. Here's what Michelle Obama's social media marketing person. This is the order of plaudits they've used, Mm. just so you know. Again, it hasn't won Pulitzer or anything like that. So number one, number one New York Times bestseller, Mm -hmm. upcoming Netflix original documentary, Oprah's book club pick, then NAACP image award winner. That's the order they put those three things. It's wild to me, and maybe, you know, that's, I am who I am. I am in congratulations to me for having my own blind spots. I would have thought I would put Oprah number one. If it were me with this book or any book, if this were my book, if I were Michelle Obama, I think I put Oprah's book club pick number one these days, but over the New York, number one New York Times bestseller. But we also know as the sausage is made, I guess. Yeah, I would, for 
like where the rubber meets the road impact, I would definitely yeah. put Oprah's book club pick before New York mm-hmm. Times. But for perceived value, I get why the New York Times is There's like one. a factor of 50 more number yeah. one New York Times. Anyway. That's... Yeah, I had a customer every time we talk about this. I remember like when I worked at Barnes & Noble, you know, 12 years ago at this point, um, I had a customer one time at the holidays asking me to help him find books for his dad. And when I said, well, what does he like to read or what are you looking for? He was like, well, he, he'll only read New York Times bestsellers. And I was like, well, I have good news for you. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it'd be easier to narrow by not New York Times bestseller. (laughs) Right. I was like, well, we don't have a display of those because it's not actually that, it's not that hard relative to other things that are hard Mm -hmm. to achieve in the world of publishing to become a New York Times bestseller, especially if you're not looking to be just the number one New York Times bestseller. If you just want to make the list, pal, like it's going to be on every book cover. That's not going to help you at all. And this didn't win the Goodreads Choice Award, I don't think, for memoir, did it? How could it not have? I don't remember. Well, wasn't it the same year as Educated? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Anyway, I'm now now I'm mixing two bits that we're doing simultaneously. I'm not sure it's successful. Just fascinating to see 32,543 ratings for an average of five stars. Number three still on Amazon's charts. I wonder if that's audio and Kindle, um, how much is happening there. Uh, wow. Fascinating. So it was like an hour, it was like feature length, hour and a half long. Yeah. It's about an hour and a half. Hmm. It's a good use of 90 minutes. Hmm. Cool. I'm going to watch that at some point. Um, but, 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 but I, I guess coming, bridging off what we talked about when we first knew this was going to be a thing in the world, we were saying other books, we'd like to see this treatment given. I'm not sure mm-hmm. there are too many other people I'd care about. Uh, that's like told through the lens of their book tour. Maybe David Sedaris. Cause he has a, a unique relationship to his, book tours. I just read a, yeah. a, a Kindle short actually that's available now called Themes and Variations at David Sedaris. It's Amazon only. Sorry if that it bothers you. Um, but it's a it's a short, you know, whatever the Sedaris genre is, it's one of those, but it's about his experience on book tours. So if you're a book nerd that likes David Sedaris, mm-hmm. have I got the Kindle single for you? But like I'd watch Sedaris or like one of those big rock star kind of like, you know, um, I'm trying to think who else goes out and goes you know, J.K. Rowling, like it's kind of like a behind the music almost. But like Tara Westover's Educated, that's told through the lens of her book tour. I'm not sure that would be a thing. Like I like politics and prose as much as the next person, but I, I don't know. Yeah, I think this format, I mean, granted, we don't have a lot of examples for it. But no. This worked really well for Michelle Obama because it was more about the person than about the book. Like yeah. people were going to see her and she happened to be talking about a book. Mm. Um like, given my current obsession with The Last Dance, if Phil Jackson wanted to write a book and go <laughs> uh, on a book tour and make a documentary about it, I would right. watch that. Right, 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 right. I don't think, yeah, with Tara Westover, I don't think people have a lot of attachment to her. It's just mm-hmm. that story is interesting. So you could probably tell a story about her going on book tour. It would just be a different kind of story. Yeah, you could look like you could do a Stephen King one, but it's sort of like you could t- use that to tell like the Stephen King f- phenomenon, like almost a buy bi- a biography documentary of Stephen King told while he's on book tour for his book of the year, which is supposed to be good. If it bleeds, I think is the new one that's out. It's supposed to be pretty good. Mm-hmm. Institute last year's book is still selling very well. I don't know, I'm a Stephen King jag. I want to say things about him. I, I was just thinking about, you know, other people who are kind of a, a moment in a movement um to themselves or like a cultural thing yeah people would watch a stephen king book I think tour so. I think documentary so. yeah. um people would definitely watch well i think i think like a nora roberts um i mean there's a segment is it would netflix 
Yeah, bankroll and nor Robert. I think I think that's a maybe another better. What would Netflix bankroll the thing? I think they would bankroll a Stephen King one. I think the list is very short after that for for people who are predominantly known as writers. Jeff, what George R. R. Martin finishes Game of Thrones and then oh. goes on tour. Do you think we'll have Netflix in forty years? <laughs> we could watch it on a hologram. He says he's writing. I'm pulling for you, George. No shade. Um, Simon Schuster. Speaking of Stephen King, Stephen King, Stephen. <laughs> Keevan Sting. Keevan Sting. Sting's son, Sting's son, Keevan. <laughs> um, Simon Schuster. We're continuing to to breed both the tea leaves and the actual tea. I don't know. I, I've lost my metaphor here. Of what's going on in book sales uh, over the year. How is the pandemic affecting the books that people are buying um, outside of, alongside of our interest and concern for what's happening into physical bookstores and libraries. Those two things are related, but not necessarily um, inextricably linked. Simon and Schuster said revenue rose 4% in the first quarter ended March 31st over the comparable, comparable period last year. Um, audiobook sales were led by good performance of um, Gerald Graff's The Only Plane in the Sky and Rebecca's series in five years. Ebook sales were up 13% in the quarter. Um, and sales are now currently running as much as 50% above last year, which just makes logical sense, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> I, um, I guess up 50% is pretty big. Twenty-six, about twenty-six percent of the publishing industry's revenues are from ebook sales. So, ebook sales alone could represent a thirteen percent increase. Um, so, this is what we've heard: books are selling. How long they will sell, through what means they will sell, and what format they will sell, remains to be seen. But I guess this is also only the first quarter, and April, May, June, and into the future. Mm-hmm. I think we've talked around this talked around and maybe through at some levels the initial bump of um patronage for independent bookstores for book buying how how long are the legs of those will people still be buying a bunch of digital books in the dog days of july and august um if bookstores aren't open will they get independent bookstore patronage fatigue i hope not but i could that's a world i can certainly see happening right Mm mm-hmm Anything else from the Simon & Schuster piece? I mean, I think it's one of those things as a data point, but beyond the data point that sort of fits with the mental model we have right now, I'm not sure it does much to, to augment it in any way. Yeah, I don't think it tells us much other than exactly what it tells us. There's not much here to like to go on for guessing about the future, but for it's interesting to see these numbers alongside like what unemployment numbers have been like yeah, yeah. and um, and be able to to know that the public is taking a big hit in general um, Mm -hmm. and presumably cutting their spending on many things, but books seem to currently be doing okay. Anecdotally, um, my shipping times um, from Amazon for print books have returned to their normal Hmm. window. I'm not sure if other people are having a similar experience. Bought a couple things last week that actually needed pretty quickly and they got here pretty quickly. That's interesting. Needed in air quotes. (laughs) Um, Let's do another sponsor. We'll talk about more pandemic related stuff. I'm not sure. We were actually debating whether or not this was worthy of a news post on the site. And I said, well, we'll probably talk about it on the show and that's mm-hmm. good enough because um, it's it's barely caring about kind of thing for most people. But if you listen to this show, you might be interested in this kind of thing, which is BookCon, 
which is the consumer-facing part of Book Expo America, which is North America's largest publishing trade show. You can hear the excitement in my decrescendo there. Um, is Both of them are going virtual for the consumer-facing thing that BookCon will be available virtually. They're going to keep... They had moved back the dates to try to keep it in meat space, but now they're coming back forward to the original dates, May 26th through 29th, 2020. They already have a roster of 12 events for Book Expo Online now available. Um, they're going to have more stuff. Um, they're going to have Carmen Maria Machado, um, Rebecca Roanhorse, uh, Judy Bloom, Natalie Portman with the dinner, uh, Misty Copeland, that kind of a thing. So I guess this is the only thing. If you run events, this is the only thing you can do. You, I, or I guess you could cancel it, but you got to do something, right? You, this is probably better for their business than not doing anything. Yeah, I think this is better than not doing anything. And I've been surprised by the number of online book events that I've seen actually get attendance online yep. in the last yep. eight weeks. Like, there is much more interest and willingness to go to these things than I anticipated based on my own personal deep lack of interest in in attending one um and i think that's great i've seen lots of independent bookstores hosting online author events that have had big attendance and these are some good names i think people might be interested in this i'll be interested like granted also probably people who are hosting online bookstore events that have four people show up Mm. are not taking screenshots of their zoom yeah great point survivorship (laughs) buyers survivors bias (laughs) right i don't have a sense of whether these highly attended ones are Mm. the norm or the exception or somewhere in between but i would maybe they're outliers probably Mm. big names are definitely outliers um be interesting they have good names i'm glad that there was something and i told i think there's a lot of I don't know if it's pressure. I think folks who run these kinds of events assume that people who were signed up to go to the event in person still like want or expect something from them. So, Mm. well, we better give them an online event. Um, I don't know how true that is or not. In my personal use case, like one of our coworkers was joking that if she wanted um, a virtual version of Book Expo, she would pay someone to come like whack her feet with hammers for a few hours. (laughs) Which is the equivalent of, you know, yeah. standing in the Javits Center. And that's about where I fall on that, that scale. But I think these are authors that people are interested in and care about. Like Judy Bloom, it kind of might be nice to watch Judy Bloom yeah. talk for a little while. My one big quibble is that they've rebranded BookCon to BookConline. And BookConline is terrible branding. And that's all I have to say about that. Doesn't work doesn't work um judy bloom netflix documentary on her last yes. book yes yeah and that would be great because you'd also have multiple generations that's what i was thinking the mm-hmm. line the signing lines would be emotional waterworks i would they think would. a lot of time mm-hmm. um yeah there's one of those things where like this their business is events and you if you don't have physical events you don't have a business so that i totally get is it a good idea is it a better idea than not having events sort of an abstract i have i don't know it might be one of those situations we've talked over the years on the show and elsewhere to each other about how, boy, it seems like BEA and BookCon could be something else. Well, this mm-hmm. is something else. And the kind of thing they wouldn't have tried unless they had to. They, because you, what you're doing, you're saying, you actually don't have to buy a $250 ticket. I, don't, I haven't looked at the tickets, frankly. I don't know how much it is. But you don't have to get to New yourself to New York. You don't have to commit the whole day. You have to spend 250 bucks. You don't have to come to Javits on the west side of Manhattan and do that slog from the 8th Avenue subway in the middle of summer when it's hot and carry books around all day. You could come and watch the Judy Bloom panel or the, let's say, Young Adult Icons 
um, on Korean American stories. Come, come do some of these from the comfort of your own home for a lower price, and maybe you've got maybe you've got interest that can scale to a lower friction event. Maybe they'll find something. I think I I could be I wouldn't be surprised when they say, you know what, online events where people get to interact with their favorite authors maybe on a per unit price is lower, but we can get to so many more people because they yeah. don't have to travel. They can come from far afield. They can come from just their apartment in Queens and not yeah. spend two hours on the train. I think that's where the potential really lies for this is to take it outside of the four walls of the Javits Center or the four walls of the bookstore. And like, here is an event that we have with an author that people are interested in. And how yeah. do you reach the people that are interested in that author, no matter where they're located? And that's been interesting to see all kinds of businesses mm. do. Like anecdotally, there's a yoga nonprofit in Richmond that I'm that I work on the board of that has a studio and usually, you know, everything happens in the studio. And just mm. like all the other yoga studios, everything now has gone online. So we we had a workshop a couple of weekends ago that like if we'd held it in the studio, we would have had probably 20 people attend and the mm. studio could hold maybe 30. We targeted ads and I, I say we like the executive director who's amazing targeted ads to like instru yoga instructors all over the world. And there mm. were 90 people who attended and one mm. of them was from Cairo, Egypt, and one of them was from somewhere in Europe. Like it really did broaden who we could reach mm. because we weren't limited by the physical space. And that's going to be really interesting to see as we eventually emerge from this pandemic, like which businesses have discovered potential from not just holding stuff in their space. Or like if you're a bookstore and you have Judy Bloom come to your store, yeah. are you also live streaming it for, you know, five bucks to people all over the world? There's, there's a bit of the classic innovators dilemma here of you, they've been trying to protect their higher perceived higher margin business by not going online like this when a lower cost easier distributed, make it up in volume business model has been something that I'm sure they've at least considered. Like they've probably said mm -hmm. no to something like this before. But if you have to say yes, then you, you get to do an experiment um, at, the, you know, at the end of a knife, with a yeah. knife point, so to well, speak. And there's value to that. You know, it, yeah. it could and work. In this moment, they're not competing against actual face-to-face -face events. They're no. only competing against what else exists online. That's right. That's and in right. the world after this, it will be the value proposition of, is it worth it to me to like buy a ticket and go to New York and see yeah. these authors when I've had the experience of watching them online and it was just fine and cost a lot less? Well, and there's, mo there's business models available to them through this that aren't just moving online for three days. Like you could have BookCon as an ongoing thing, like TEDx, sure. you know, like TED mm -hmm. Talks or something like that moves around or you have yep. like a monthly, you know, a monthly panel of events. You could sell subscriptions. Like there's a way it could work out that this moment in time requires them to try something and they may find something new here, maybe more mm -hmm. exciting or more flexible, uh, reaches more people. I don't want the consumer, or the, uh, that, the consumer version of that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. The industry side of that, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe. maybe yeah, I don't. There. I don't know. I'd be interested in hearing industry people talk about the value of Book Expo and yep. if they're going to attend Book Expo online. I, I guess most of what will be offered for Book Expo online is like the continuing education kinds of pieces. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know how useful or not those are. They're mostly targeted at booksellers. Um, so I don't know. But right. those kinds of things you could attend seminar-wise, like in terms of business meetings and for what we do, 
book expo's utility is in the fact that like everyone we need to talk to is in one building for four days and is taking appointments but we could just as easily or not just as easily but we could set phone calls with all of them or set zoom Mm -hmm. meetings with all of them which is what is going to be happening this year yeah which i've already done frankly right meetings yeah and like the the business gets done one way or the other like i i don't feel like i'm missing something from what we do by not being able to be in Javits Center for four days. Like, no part of me is sad about not going to the Javits Center for four days. I mean, days. it's basically a giant um, example of batching, right? You batch all the sellers together, you <laughs> right, batch all the publicists, right. and there's value to that. Mm-hmm. And there is the Zoom call fatigue, too, that sets in. Yeah, that's in. real. And, you know, all the studies say that you're more likely to get to a mutual agreeable decision in person than on the phone or by email or by writing. So I think there's actually a deal-making case to be in person and batch them all together, um, how that translates into the viability of the event over time, uh, I, I'm just less sure about. Yeah. I've been, like you, I've been surprised to see the relative strength of a lot of online things. I just don't, listen, I'm the wrong person to use my own experience to gauge like the generally <laughs> applicable data about the yeah. market, product market fit for stuff like this. Because like, there's, I mean, there might be no one I'm going to watch do a live thing if I can watch it on my own term later. Like, even the great Tony herself, I'm not sure that I'm making an appointment on a Tuesday afternoon to sit in my computer to watch an Instagram thing when I could go read Tony or, uh, you know, watch it later on my own thing or whatever. That's just not who I am. But I've talked to some publishers that have had, you know, to use their own words, very good success. And they're mm-hmm. thinking about, do we need to do as much touring as we've historically done? Um, or if we pick bookstores that we go do tours at, we make sure they have sort of sort of some sort of brand extension piece that's right. you know Instagram Live or a podcast or a YouTube or whatever, um, and that makes a lot of sense because their book tours by themselves historically don't pencil out like you don't make more money from the book sales than you make to send the author on you know, to Albuquerque and Sheboygan, um, but they think that it matters for the stores. They mm-hmm. think it matters for word of mouth. They think it matters for, you know, brand building and, you know, people getting to know the author and so on and so forth. Could you do 80% of that without paying someone to fly around in a tube full of dinosaur juice, um, burning, <laughs> burning? You know what I mean? Like, uh-huh. it, it could be a case where you don't get as much, but you're paying a hell of a lot less for it. Or maybe you're getting more in a different way. I think people using this time as best they can to experiment and rethink the status quo is a productive and not denial way of dealing with this. Like if you're going to do something. Yeah, I think so too. And even what you were saying about like, you know, the statistics and studies that show that there's a higher likelihood of reaching a mutually agreeable deal. If you're face to face, like we don't even know where zoom factors in. It's a great point that. So like, we think that being face-to-face is better because we know it's better than making a deal over the phone. But how much better is it than making a deal mm-hmm. by Zoom, especially after you spend you know, six months or a year, whatever we're going to spend, like really not being in crowded meeting spaces yeah. with each other and in office buildings as people adapt to this, like preference and feeling safe also really matters in this case mm. too so i'm i would be really interested like you know 20 years from now <laughs> what like what business and negotiations folks are talking about in terms of the hierarchy of like the best ways to conduct your meetings in order to reach deals or to come to agreements because there's so much technology and there are a variety of ways you can do things and like zoom fatigue is real but also there's value to seeing people online and how do you how does that fit in and i think we just don't know 
It's interesting too because like we think of the book tour as like part of the firmament of the American publishing world when it's really only the 1950s onward. Like mm-hmm. Hemingway wasn't going on a book tours. It just, it just wasn't happening. Like basically my, my understanding, I could be wrong, is that Robert Gottlieb eventually invented the idea of a celebrity book tour for Dr. Seuss who landed Dr. Seuss in a helicopter oh. on Macy's um, to, to, to promote the release of one of the Dr. Seuss books. That's and, a great fact. I didn't know that. Yeah, well, it's, you know, that's one of my shelved annotated ideas is the invention of the book tour and mm-hmm. the Dr. Seuss phenomenon that go hand in hand. Um, but like, so it can go away. It was invented. It could go away. There, there's no doubt about um, the, the possibility that that is a thing that could happen. The resilience of it is, I guess, in hindsight, kind of surprising. Um, the, the, what it takes to get people all over the country, given how much book buying happens online and so on and so forth. I wonder how much publishers have really looked at the priors they've used to justify that. I, mm. I, I'm sure I'm sure some of them have, but um, how do they go out making, like, is it worth it to send this mid-list author on a tour of the West Coast? Um, or how much is it standard operating procedure and the friction of reimagining it is too high for a variety of reasons to even think about doing Yeah, I think there's a lot of endowment effect about a lot of the ways that author tours get done and that like book advertising gets done and that publishing is used to operating inside a black box for many of those things. Like, what is the ROI of a full page ad in the New York Times? Mm -hmm. Who? Yeah, no one knows because you can't like track. Oh, they know it's negative. We know that. Yet it's but yet it's still very important, you know, or like, well, they do it for other reasons. ROI. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And book tour, right. Like it's not, there's no way that, as you were saying, like a book tour can pencil out for almost any author mm-hmm. as being profitable <laughs> against what it costs to execute that book tour. But there are other kinds of value that publishers associate with it. And I think slash hope that this will be a moment of reevaluating some of those mm-hmm. things and asking, like asking which things that we just associate value with do work and which mm-hmm. ones don't and like feelings matter too so absolutely which, how like how far are we willing to go for the author cares about seeing a book in this place or the author wants to go on tour or we want to make this bookstore happy or whatever like there are lots of factors that go into the decisions that publishers make that aren't just specifically about the dollars and cents of it but this is a moment i think for tossing everything on the table to be reevaluated mm. and it's going to be really interesting to see which pieces remain and which ones change and which ones are taken off. Um I feel like that's our show Rebecca Shinsky. Is there anything else you want to talk about today? Probably the value over replacement shandy is pretty low for anything we're <laughs> going to talk about for the last story on the agenda I would think. <laughs> Yeah, I think I'm ready to, you know, I have to finish fried green tomatoes. So I'm going to drink a shandy and finish fried green tomatoes. It's a Friday afternoon. Ninny Threadgood, legendary, iconic. Iggy, really legendary. Icon power rankings for fried green tomatoes. Is that one of our segments? We can do that. We'll add that to our category. The names are incredible. I don't know why there's this. I mean, maybe it's true in the South that people have more idiosyncratic names. But it's definitely a trope of like Southern pop fiction that you really have a long list with naming people things. Right? Am I wrong Mm -hmm. about that? Or is that a real Southern thing? I think it's a real Southern thing. Like this comes out of Southern culture. Yeah. But they don't play it down, let's say, in fried green tomatoes. No. No. <laughs> All right, Rebecca, have a good weekend. Uh, you podcast too. at bookriot.com if you've got a reading recommendation. I also entertain alternate 
branding for the Dayton Literary Prize. I'd be happy to talk about that on the air some more. Talk to you next fourth week. best mystery writer. The fourth best the Ohio Literary Award. We're coming for you, Columbus. Next year. Talk to you later.